Good morning. morning. You guys did much better than the slacker group at 9 a.m. This place was empty. You know, you don't do this with your kids, but I just want you guys to know, you guys are my favorite. (laughs) Same. Uh, My name is Dave Sherwood. I'm the lead pastor here at Cornerstone Church. I welcome you today. If you're a visitor, when you came through those glass doors, there's a pallet wall in front of you. Tons of information about the church there. If you want to get some other information after the service, stick your head over there and take a look at all the stuff that we've got. Um, I've got a couple of announcements for you this morning, and so let me get to those right away. First thing is we have birthday bags for Perry County Food Bank, Saturday, January 12th at 9 a.m. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be putting together actual birthday bags for people. This is going to be then distributed through the Perry County Food Bank, but we're getting together Saturday January 12th at 9 a.m. so that you can help us pack all of those bags so that we can take them there. In addition to that, uh, even if you can't come that day, but you want to figure out a way to help out, if you go again to that pallet wall area, there's some lists out there of all the stuff that we need for these bags. And so you can pick up one of those lists and you can contribute that way, and that would be fantastic. Another announcement is Communion Sunday is coming up Sunday, January the 13th. On Communion Sundays, we also take a big benevolence offering, basically at the end of service. And so last year, we, I think altogether about $25,000, we spent last year keeping the heat on in some people's houses, fixing cars, paying electricity bills, all sorts of different things in order to keep people's heads above water when everything feels like it's falling apart. And that's part of what it means for us to be Christians, to be like Jesus, reach out with hope and help people kind of get their head above water. So anyways... Um, you can be thinking about between now and that Communion Sunday, praying about what you can maybe contribute so we can kind of build up that fund so that we can do more benevolence this next year. And then Middle School Fun Lab as a new group for 5th to 8th graders. Sunday's at 10.30, so at this time slot, it's beginning 1-6-19. So if you have somebody in that age bracket, you might want to uh, think about letting them jump in and trying out our Middle School Fun Lab. Now that... That is a fun lab that's limited to people 5th through 8th grade. So if you're looking for a dodge out of the service, you can't go. You have to stay in here with me. All right, I'm going to pray. We are in the middle of a series on prayer. Actually, we're at the end of the series on prayer. What I want to do is I want to pray. Today we're going to be talking about relinquishment and embracing. And I'll explain all of that here in a little bit. The long and short of it is you want to be asking God, God, what things do you want me to let go of? God, what things do you want me to embrace? If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, if you're still kicking that around while I'm praying, if you'll just shut your eyes and bow your heads along with everybody else, just feel your way towards God a little bit, that would be great. If you'll pray with me now. Our Father God, we come before you and we ask in the name of Jesus that your Holy Spirit would teach us this morning. That as we're looking at your scriptures, as we're looking at these Bible verses, that you would be utilizing those to guide our hearts, guide our minds down the pathways that you have for us. We want to put you more and more in control of our lives, and we ask that that process would be furthered along by what we do here this morning. And We pray all these things in the name of Jesus the Christ and all God's people said... Amen. So before we get to any verses, um, what I want to do is I want to, I want to talk about something. So 
How many of you like have ever like had a house or something? Anybody ever have one of those? Okay. So I've got a house, and so um, we had some walls that were beige, and we're not really beige people, and so we've got this this paint, and um, I'm painting my beige walls yesterday, but I'm I'm painting them, and it's this bright fluorescent radioactive lemon color. And so I'm a little concerned, you know, and I'm, I'm, but I'm, I'm painting. And as I'm painting, I do what a lot of people do. You know, I've been in the house a little bit less than a year. I'm, I'm painting and I'm thinking about what else do we need to do and, you know, what are all the little projects around the house. And it got me thinking a little bit about what I wanted to talk about today. So you know how when you buy a house, you know, you probably like it the way it is, but you're also thinking about all the things that you want to add to it. When I became a Christian... Let me tell you the way I thought about it, because I thought about it a little bit like you would think about with a house. So when I became a Christian, what I thought is, I've got my own life, I've got my house, that I can paint any way I want, do anything the way I want, and and all that good stuff. And when I decided to become a Christ follower, I thought what I was doing is inviting Jesus into one little small part of my house. In fact, the way I thought about it was as if you had like an attic space or something and you could open up the roof and put in a skylight and, you know, maybe put down some rugs, kind of clean up a room and say, hey, Jesus, I've let you into my life a little bit and this is the little section for you and I'll visit you every now and then when I've really screwed up bad or when I need something and that's about it. Now, the funny thing is, I wasn't a Christian very long before I realized that's not really at all what's going on in the Bible. That Jesus isn't asking, can I have like some small little sliver of your life? It's something else altogether. As if I were to say, hey, Jesus, you know, I've let you into my life. Notice that I, I, I carved out this little section for you. I give you a couple hours on Sunday and I give you a couple of bucks. And, you know, I volunteer for something. I, I, you know, yay! And Jesus basically says back, you know, it's... It's not that one little room. Like, I don't get the mother-in-law suite in your house, Dave. Dave, have you ever seen that show, Extreme Makeover House Edition? That's where we're going. Now, I don't know about you, but that was a little bit of a shock to me when I first became a Christian. I thought, okay, I've wrestled back and forth with, do I believe, do I not believe, do I believe, do I not believe, back, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I think I really do believe. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to let this little section of Jesus in. But Jesus wants to saturate and transform our lives. And that's a very different reality than just giving Jesus some little sliver over here and there. And what does it look like to go through that battle of, is it my life? Or is it God's life? You know, back to the whole house thing. You know, it's, it's like my house. I bought this house. It, except it's not really my house. Obviously, it's, 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 her, it's her house. Except actually, it's not even her house. It's obviously the, the bank's house. And that's my point. My point is, you may think about it one way, but there's other realities there. So Jesus is an interesting character, obviously, in the New Testament, because he's all God and he's all man. Now, the thing that's interesting about that is we watch him sometimes struggling with the the human components of who he is. And we see him in the middle of understanding that 
God the Father is asking him to head towards the cross. Now he knows that the cross is what's going to liberate everyone, that all the sin, all the rebellion, all the funkiness of who we are is going to get taken care of at the, at the cross, that it's going to open up the floodgates for us to have unconditional connection to God that had been shut down because of our own selfishness and our sin. He knows that, but he's struggling with that reality. And in fact, we step in in Luke twenty-two forty-two, and he's praying about this. And he says this, he says, Father, Dad, if you're willing, can you take this cup away from me? But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now, the thing that's interesting is we're Christ followers, and so we follow this pathway of Christ. And so in one sense, one of the first things that I want to say is it's normal to be conflicted because we're told to live this life where we deny ourselves and we pick up a cross and we follow him, and so we're living this different life than the life that we would have chosen. Not my will. Because what's my will? Well, how much time do you have? Let me tell you what my will is. My will is a bigger house, and my will is a lottery win, and my will is a 1966 Mustang with the Boss engine and a Shelby hood, and even though those don't go together, that's exactly what I want. And my will is all sorts of crazy things based upon my ego and my vanity and my pain. I would like my real life to look something like my Facebook page. But my real life is what is shoveled out of the picture in my selfie. But there's my will. But then there's another will. There's God's will. And in becoming a Christian, there's an interesting little kind of fork in the road. It doesn't just happen once. It happens over and over again. Do I think that his way is better than my way? Which one am I going to choose? Interestingly, the way it's framed here is remove this cup from me. So I want you to imagine that there's two cups. One is, this is, this is a cup. It's, it's not full of glorious coffee. I want you to think of it as full, it's full of dirt. Okay? And, and this is the cup I choose. This is a cup of how I make all my decisions. I make my decisions based upon my ego, my vanity, my desires, my self-identity, my whatever. Okay? You know, that, that's what I do. That's how I live life. Before I was a Christian, that dominated everything all the time. They were my decisions to make on my terms, my way. Now, you only have to live a certain amount of time before you start to realize the good, the good news is I am captain of my ship. The problem is it's the Titanic. And I'm a terrible captain. Part of my desire to become a Christian was to surrender and to say, I stink at living life. Like the stuff that's going on in here and in here and every place else, it's not great. I'm not competent at this. So then there's this other cup. His will. Pure, clean, fresh, brings out the best in me, brings out my true identity, my purpose and everything else. But sometimes it's hard. Sometimes I don't want it. Sometimes I don't like it. I'm going to have to actively, intentionally choose it. And so when we talk about this prayer of relinquishment and embrace, it's a very active prayer where you go and you say to God, God, not my will, 
God, help me shut down my selfishness that rages like an inferno. I want to spend my time doing what I want, going on my vacation, thinking my thoughts, feeling my feelings on my terms, with my perspective, me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity. And as I'm praying, God, help me shut that thing down. I'm at the same time saying, and open me up to something else. Open me up to your character, your plan, what you have for my life. I want to embrace that. I want to let go of this and embrace this. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. And if Jesus struggles with it, we're going to struggle with it. The question becomes, how does he get good at it? How does he get so good at it that he's willing to embrace something like a cross? Well, it says this in Philippians 2, 5 through 6. It says, have this attitude in yourself which was also this attitude thing that's in Christ Jesus. And then it's going to start to talk about what this attitude is based upon. It it starts with a couple of things like this. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Now, what does that mean? Well, you're going to find out some other things coming up here in a second, but this attitude that Jesus has is Jesus is okay with being a servant. Jesus comes and he washes the feet of his disciples. And Jesus comes and is not like all big and impressive all the time. He makes a decision to not be driven by ego or vanity. He makes the choice to be a servant. I don't know if you've ever seen this movie. I don't even know if I've seen this movie, but I remember the quote from it. The quote from it is this, I want you to want to do the dishes. Okay? I want you to want to do the dishes. Don't just do the dishes and go, like, do the dishes and go, yeah, there's little, you know, Walt Disney animated creatures flying around me, helping me. Now, what is that all about? What that's all about is, am I going to engage God in what God's desire is? in a grumbling sort of obedience where I really don't trust his character or anything else. I know it's Christianity because it tastes bad. It's like the liver and onions approach of... Or am I going to want it because I trust his character and I've hopefully, as I move through being a Christian through the years, I find out he really is a much better captain of my ship than I am. It's not that he's just focused on my happiness because he's not, but he is focused on my deep joy my deep peace, my deep meaning, identity, and purpose. And running down this road with him is a lot more dynamic than this other road. Even though it seems kind of lame to be a a servant. But again, I want you to notice in this verse that what he says is this attitude, this Jesus guy is not grasping just his divinity when he is down here. He's grasping, in in fact, his, his servanthood. He doesn't just grasp his divinity and go around and go, oh, hey, Pharisee, lightning bolt. He doesn't do that. He's focused on something else very different. Now, the interesting thing becomes for us as Christians, what's it mean to be a great, heroic Christian? Shh. Down on your knees. Wash the feet of the least of these. Visit those in prison. Go take care of lepers. That's what it looks like. 
this attitude. It goes on, it keeps talking about this attitude, and it says this, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, notice a a little bit more of an explanation about this attitude. He empties himself. What does that mean? It means that he takes away kind of his divine prerogative, all, all the magical, cool powers. He keeps some of them. We see some miracles and stuff, but he's by and large emptying himself of that because what he's doing is he's embracing something else. He's taking on the form of a bond servant. He's made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of man. And then it says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Obedience to the point of. Now that's an interesting little sliding scale, isn't it? Because what you'll notice is there's a certain amount of obedience and that what follows it is a certain amount of humility. And the more obedience and humility that you've got into play, the more you can embrace something as hard as even dying on a cross. So the question starts to become something like this. Is this attitude in you that's in Jesus? Are you still scrambling in a mad dash for what you want on your terms? Is that what you're grasping towards? Or are you grasping towards being a servant, being humble, being obedient? And what would that look like? How much of your life would change if that were to happen? I don't know if you know anything about St. Francis. If you come from a Catholic background, you might know a little bit about St. Francis. I'm not interested in St. Francis from a Catholic standpoint. I am interested in St. Francis from a Christian standpoint as somebody that decided to become a Jesus follower. So let me tell you a little bit about St. Francis if you don't know anything about St. Francis. So he's, he's, he's a little rich kid. His dad owns a, a business that's making a lot of money. And so he comes from this little rich kid background, and he goes off to war. And when he goes off to war, he sees some horrors in war. And he comes back injured, and he's kind of convalescing. And while he's doing this convalescing, post-war and post-kind of being a rich little frat boy, he's thinking in bed about what's the meaning of life? What am I going to dedicate myself to? What do I think is true or meaningful or anything? And he increasingly is focused on who Jesus is. And he finally makes the decision to become a Jesus follower. Now, here's where things get interesting, because we don't, we don't do it like this. He steps out into the middle of town one day when he decides to fully become a Jesus follower in sort of absolute 100% terms. He renounces his fortune and renounces his family to everyone. He says, I'm going to become this Jesus follower. I'm not going to be tied to the expectations or assumptions or anything else. And I'm not going to have this like privately funded by my parents. I'm going to be completely liberated from all of that. I'm going to just depend on Jesus and just follow him in everything that I do. He strips down butt naked and walks out of town. Now, we're not going to be doing that today if anybody receives Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But it brings a point to the table, which is this. Part of what St. Francis understood was he wants to be all in. 
And we don't do that. We have a tendency to kind of go back and forth a little bit. I'm trying to give Jesus a little bit more of my life and a little bit more of my life. And some of that's normal and some of that I want you to think about maybe isn't great. So when it says something like he emptied himself, what exactly does that mean? Well, there's a Greek term for it. So theologians like to kick around, so I, I need to act like my education that I spent a fortune on is actually worthwhile. So here it is. Emptied himself. It comes from a Greek word, kenosis. You, you, be impressed, like clap. Yeah. Uh, kenosis. Emptying of self to become entirely receptive to God's divine will. Releasing our life to embrace the life God has for us. It's often called the great exchange. So again, if we're talking about this cup, we've got these, these two cups. And so I've got this one cup of dirty water, which is my life on my terms, my will. And you know, I, I need to, I, I want to add a little bit more of Jesus to it, right? So... Um, so, you know, this is the divine will, my will, divine will. We're going to add, what do you think? Like a jigger? Maybe two? Ah, three shots. We'll go big. Yeah. Uh, but you'll notice it's still all brown, isn't it? It's like more dirty water. The idea with kenosis is very different than that. It would be that you would empty out the vessel completely so that you could fill it fully with God. Now, why do I say that to you guys? Because you guys are all already anticipating. But Dave, that's impossible. Of course it is. That's exactly where I want you to aim. Why? Because as long as we play this little game, a little bit of Jesus, I, mean, I, want, I kind of want Jesus in my life, in my finances. I kind of want him in my sexuality. I, you know, I, I kind of want him in my attitude at work. And I, I kind of, we're going back and forth and back and forth, and we end up double-minded about everything. So this idea of kenosis is this idea that you completely empty the vessel of self so that you can be completely filled up with God's will. Will you fail at it? Yes. Did Jesus fail at it? No. But when you focus that sort of way at it, it's far more likely to be transformational. Because the question becomes, well, when am I going to be done? When am I going to be finally transformed enough to really call myself a Christian? Never. Never. My bigger question for you is this. Do you look in, in any way dramatically different over the last year of following Jesus? Or does it feel like you're in autopilot? spinning your wheels, that you're basically the same person that you were a year ago. Because if there's one reason God brought me to this planet, it's to break Christians out of that. So I don't necessarily want you to pick everything to transform, but you might say, Jesus, I want all of your will in how I'm living out my life in terms of my sexuality. God, I want all of your will in my finances. I want all of, and you do a complete surrender and a complete exchange. And you see what it's like. And what happens is the more of your life that you give over to God in those sort of radical ways, you start to go, you know, if you're looking through your house, you're like, well, that room's a mess, and that room's a mess, and that room's a mess, and that room needs this. And then there's this glorious man cave room where everything is awesome, and there are antelope heads on the wall, and fountains of pudding. <laughs> and that happens to be the room that you gave completely over to Jesus, and you're like, I need to put him in charge of more rooms in my house. That's what I want for you. Emptied himself. 
the great exchange. It says this in 1 Corinthians 6.19. If you're not... (laughs) If you're not sure if this is legit, what I'm asking you to do. It says this, do you not know? So it's a rhetorical question. Do you not know that a couple of things? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and then tricky, 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 that you are not your own. Now, think about the temple. The temple is just this building. Whether or not God's stuff is going on in it, well, it goes back and forth in the Old Testament. There's times they get it right, times they get it wrong. A church is just a building. Whether or not we're serious about God and God's stuff is going on here, or whether it's just trivia and politics and religious claptrap is always the question. A container is just a container. The question is, what's it full of? And then the question for each of us and all of us is, You do realize that you're a temple for the Holy Spirit to fill up. And then it goes on. This Holy Spirit is inside of you, and it's from God. How how committed is God to you? You can can talk about, I'm committed to my kids, and I I even have a higher commitment to to my wife. But when you're talking about intimacy... God's inside of you after you become a Christian. The Holy Spirit resides inside of you and is candidly trying to take over. Trying to release you from your selfishness. Trying to release you into servanthood. And we fight it and it goes back and forth. And then there's this odd little reminder at the end. You are not your own. What does that mean? Well, let me give you something to think about in terms of what does that mean. In the Old Testament, there's this book called Hosea. It's a weird book. Because what happens in the book of Hosea is there's this prophet named Hosea. He's going to marry a woman named Gomer. And she's a prostitute. And God God tells her, tells him to marry a prostitute. God also says to him, what's going to happen with you and your spouse is going to be like a little drama play about what's going on with me and my people Israel. Because my people Israel are acting like a prostitute to me. They're not really committed to me. And so here's, here's poor Hosea. He's sort of trapped in a Hallmark Lifetime movie, right? And as he's going on in this relationship with this prostitute, has a bunch of kids, but she keeps leaving. She keeps bailing. She's not committed. She's not all in. Finally, she leaves one of the times and things get so bad for her that she has to sell herself into slavery. So there she is one day. She's in the slave market. There's all these people that are going to be bid on that are going to sell themselves as bond servants. Kind of as humiliating as it can get for a person. And then what happens is Hosea shows up after he's been emotionally just tortured and shredded by this woman the whole beginning of the book. And he goes to the slave auction All these people know the story of what's going on. 
And in front of everybody, he buys her back. If you ever have been in church and you've ever heard the term redemption, this is kind of what that idea is, being bought. Except it says for us that are Christians that we were bought with Jesus' blood at the cross. That that's how he redeemed us. He brought us back. There's this distance between us and God. It's our sin. It's our rebellion. It's our foolishness. Our funkiness. Our ego. Our vanity. The disaster of our lives separating us from God. And we can't be good enough to kind of make enough karma to get back connected to God. The only thing that can happen is Jesus can redeem us. He pays the price. He doesn't just pay some coin. He pays with his own life so that we can be reconnected fully to God the Father. And so there's this reminder. We don't just live life on our own terms. We're, we're trying to get this divine thing where we're letting go of grasping for this, but we're, we're wanting to grasp for God. And let me remind you that this Holy Spirit's inside of you, and it's active, and it's, it's trying to kind of win the day. And by the way, have you forgotten Have you forgotten Adam and Eve, they wanted to be autonomous? That the whole point of salvation, of rescue, is that we said we're not competent at running our lives. Jesus, take the wheel. We were bought with a price. It says in the following verse this, that you were not your own for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And the question always becomes something like this. What's your response? How much do you feel like you kind of owe Jesus in light of what he's he's done for you? I mean, if I'm off in the military someplace and some guy from the bad guy side throws a grenade and my buddy jumps on the grenade and kind of eats all the shrapnel for me and then he's dead and I'm alive because he's dead, do do you not think that I'm going to want to find out, was this guy married? Did he have kids? Like, I got to step up. I got to step in. I owe him everything. So Jesus dies. And his death redeems us back to himself. And he says, basically, Paul says, remember, you owe him everything. Now, again, you can do that a couple of different ways. You can do that resentfully, like, oh, now I'm just God's slave. Or you can do it appreciatively going, He loved me that much. I I want to, I'm not good at running my life. I want to fully surrender and go down this road with God. Again, what does this look like? It says this in Philippians 3.13. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid a hold of it yet. This is Paul's fancy way of saying, I haven't got my head wrapped around this completely yet. I haven't got this all figured out yet. But one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I reach forward to what lies ahead. Paul basically says, look, I don't have this whole Christianity thing figured out. I do know one of the sabotage points is being trapped in the past and the way I used to be and the sort of things that I used to do and everything else. I've got to let that go because it's taking up heart space brain space. It's slowing me down. It's the drag chute on my life. And I've got to reach forward into what God's got next, what God's got now, what God wants to do and build 
in, with, and through me. And so the question when I put this into play, when I say relinquishment and embrace, is what does that look like in your life? To be Paul and to say, what do I need to let go of? What do I need to quit thinking about, quit feeling, quit being engaged with, quit slowing myself down? Because all of that is chewing up the future, as long as I stay in the past. Which one are you reaching for? I have depression. If you've been here for a while, you know I talk about it every now and then. Probably talk about it all the time because it's there all the time. And I can feed it from the past. But to be honest with you, a good portion of what I have to do to maintain not being depressed is I have to not feed that. I've got to be focused on forging the future, not being trapped in the past. Which sort of person are you? It says this, which is a parallel. It says way back in the Old Testament in Isaiah 43, it says this, Do not call to mind the former things and ponder the things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. And then a little rhetorical, ironic question. Will you not be aware of it? That's the question. If you were to be real practical, it would look something like this. You would take a journal today when you get home. And you would open it up. Open up it like a, like a little, you know, thing that you write papers in high school. You, you know, you, what are those things called? Composition book. My Alzheimer's is right here with me right now. Okay, so you open up the composition book. On the left side, you would literally go to God and you would say, God, what do I need to relinquish? What do I need to let go of? You just shut your eyes and you just pray that and you focus and you see what comes up in your heart and your mind. What do I need to let go of in terms of my vanity or my pain or my anger or that situation or that person that I need to forgive? All of that. Father, all of this stuff, what do I need to let go of? Because it's chewing through emotional resources and focus and attention. And you'd fill up that one side with that. On the right side, what you would do is you'd say, and God, what do you want to do next? Where do you want me to go all in next? All in with my finances, all in with my sex, sexuality, all in with my attitude at work, all in with, and you just start writing that. What, God, do you want to do new now? And you would start to fill that up. Now, are you going to get this perfect? No, nobody gets this perfect. What you're going to do, though, is you're going to say, okay, God, this is what I'm focused on. I'm focused on destroying this, letting go of this, reaching towards this, embracing this, and moving into the future that you do have for me. You could even rip out this page on the on the one side, and light it on fire outside. Now, in your mind, two, three days later, you may rewrite it, and that's fine. Rewrite it, and then burn it again. But what you're really going to be intentional about is, what is this new thing that's springing forth? And you're asking God, make me aware of it. Make me aware of how to be a better husband. Make me aware of how to be a better friend. Make me aware of how to be a better boss or a better employee. Make me aware 
of what you want to do next. As you're transforming this house of my life, show me. Now, if you'll notice a little bit in all this, I'm trying to get you to be very intentional. Because when people just kind of bob along in their Christianity, what happens is five months go by, five years go by, and it's autopilot, and nothing is happening. There's nothing fun, no sparks, nothing worthy of writing a biography. The flip side is people that fully engage and are trying to be intentional, there's all kinds of things that happen. And you can see that even in this little statement. Will you be aware of it or not? Will you be aware of what God has for you next or not? So to sum it all up, I'd say this. Ask God for his will. Ask him. Flat out say, God, I want your will. You know the implications of that is less of your will and more of his will be done. But pray it. It's dangerous. Pray it. Secondly, empty your ego. Just start letting go. Let let go of some of your dreams and fantasies and selfishness and perspective and attitude. Just start letting go. Kenosis. Empty out. And embrace what? Embrace servanthood. Embrace small moments. Small things. When I wash the dishes, I want to wash the dishes as a servant. Washing the feet of my children and my spouse, just like Jesus. When I show up with donuts at work, it's because I'm a servant. I want to embrace servanthood. Next is I need to forget the past. The older you get, the more the past chews up energy. Which is why as you get older, you're not excited about the future and about what God's doing now and what God's doing next. Because you're still either pining away for the glory days or whining about it. Sorry. I got gray hair. This is what happens to us. Instead, what I want to do is I want to forget the past. Because you know when the glory days are? The glory days are right here, right now. Because God's doing a new thing right here, right now. Because he's still alive and he's still active. Inside of every single one of us that are Christ followers. And he's wanting to utilize us to forge the future, to make the future into the kingdom the way he wants it to be. But you've got to be aware of it. You've got to ask for awareness about it. And that's what I'm praying that you do. Let 2018 fade away. Grab 2019, bull by the horns. Stare God in the face and say, show me how to be all you want and need me to be in 2019. Let me pray. Father God, we come before you. And Father, we're mistaken because oftentimes we think that it's our life. And we've just invited you to come along and coach us a bit. And Father, we ask that you'd forgive us because we forget that Jesus landed on the grenade for us, that he went to the cross for us, that he paid for us. So help us to remember that, Father. And help us, when we remember that, to let you fully in. Help us to let go of grasping for our own life. And help us to leap in faith towards the life that you have for us. You know, Father, that we struggle, that we will always struggle back and forth. But would you give us the courage to go into the deep end of the pool with a cannonball of faith towards you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus the Christ and all God's people said... Amen.